Our first reading this morning is taken from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, and can be found on page 1161 of our church Bibles. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Having lost my voice on Wednesday morning completely, and it's been gradually coming back since, um, I think I better pray that it holds out. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would come now and help me to speak and give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look at the front of your service sheets, um, who do you think that is, is a picture of? Well, as you might guess, it's one person's idea of what Jesus might look like. And as we look at it, we might say, well, it's just a bloke. It's just, it just could be any, any person at all. And I wanted to put that to you because the Samaritan woman we heard about just now in the story 
came to the well under a blazing hot sun at midday and found a man, a thirsty man, sitting there and she didn't have a clue who he was. Just an ordinary Jewish man. But here's the crucial thing. When she walked away from the well a little later, as a result of her encounter with the man at the well, her life is changed forever, transformed in a completely wonderful way. And I think that if we can understand why that is, then it can help each one of us to have a similar kind of experience to the woman and and transformation in our lives that will strengthen our faith and equip us to be God's people in the world. So let's look at the story. And before I start, I should say that I'm indebted to Timothy Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York and best-selling Christian author, for some of the ideas which I've drawn on from his book, Encounters with Jesus, which I highly recommend. If you haven't read it, Encounters with Jesus by Timothy Keller is well worth a read. But in the first few verses, verses 4 to 9, we discover that this is actually a most unlikely conversation to have happened at all. As the woman approaches the well where the man's sitting, we might, in our culture, imagine a woman approaching a bus stop where there's a man sitting and striking up a conversation. But this is quite different, totally different. Firstly, she's a Samaritan and he is a Jew. And there was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. When the Jews of Israel had been exiled hundreds of years before to Babylon, a few who were left behind intermarried with their former enemies, the Canaanites, and formed a new tribe called the Samaritans. And they mixed the two religions together. And so the Jews of Jesus' day considered Samaritans racially inferior and religious heretics. Secondly, it was scandalous for a Jewish man to speak with any strange woman in public in that culture. What's more, she'd come to draw water at noon, and women didn't do that. They always drew water at the start of the day when it's cool, so that they had water for the day's chores and the food preparation and so on. She was there at noon, we learn later, because she was a moral outcast, even from her society, marginalised by even her own marginalised society. And you know, the really sad thing is that today, there are so many people who think, I'm not worthy of God's love. I'm not worth Jesus' attention. I'm not good enough that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. I can see why God would um, come alongside Carol or Barbara or whoever it is, But me, I don't know. I don't think I'm good enough. There's too much wrong with me for God to love me and save me. And so the first thing this encounter with Jesus shows us is that Jesus reaches across every significant barrier that you could think of. Racial, cultural, religious, gender, moral, all of those barriers. He just reaches right across them. And he loves her. He loves her in the most active way imaginable. He puts himself out for the benefit of her spiritual growth, for the transformation of her life, for the saving of her very soul. And he will do that for you and for me 
if we will let him. The second thing Jesus does is to challenge her. After she's got over the surprise that a Jewish man would ask her to draw water for him, he tells her in verse 13 that he too has some water. He calls it a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what he means by that is that he can offer this woman something as basic and life-giving to her spiritually as water is to us physically. In other words, something without which you're completely lost. And what's more, this source of water will come up from inside a person. He says a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about deep soul satisfaction, about a contentment which doesn't depend on what's happening outside of us. If I ask you what will make you happy, nearly everyone will start thinking of things outside of themselves, whether it's romantic love, whether it's a promotion, whether it's winning the lottery, a new house, a new job, whether it's every seat in the church being filled. Now you know the vicar's dream. Um, And we think that that if I have that, if I can just get there, then I've made it. Then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be happy. But Jesus says, there is nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy that thirst deep down inside. Why don't we realize this? Because we don't. Well, why do we keep falling for the big lie that if I only had this, that, or the other, then I will be content, I'll be fulfilled? Well, Keller says that the reason that most of us don't hear Jesus and we don't recognize our soul thirst is because as long as we still think there's a chance that we can reach our goals, achieve our dreams, or have a shot at success, then we experience that inner emptiness as drive and our anxiety as hope. And as a result, we can remain completely oblivious to how deep our thirst really is. And that's why the few people who actually do reach their goals or exceed their dreams are shocked to find that these these longed-for circumstances don't satisfy. There are so many examples of this probably in our own lives as well. But some well-known ones, Freddie Mercury of the rock band Queen, had millions of pounds, hundreds of millions of fans, and yet, shortly before he died, he said that he was the loneliest person. Boris Becker, the youngest ever Wimbledon champion, a multimillionaire, said he had everything he'd ever wanted, but no inner peace. Sophia Loren, the famous actress, who said she had everything, went on to say that she had an inner emptiness which was impossible to fill. Everybody has got to live for something. But Jesus is saying that if he is not that thing, it will fail you. Fortunately for the woman at the well, she has no such illusions of grandeur or achieving her dreams. And so, recognizing the spiritual power of the man standing in front of her, she asks in verse 15, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water. But instead, Jesus springs another surprise. Go and get your husband, he says. 
And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus continues, yeah, that's right. You have no husband. You've ditched the last five husbands or they've ditched you. And now the man you're living with can't even be called a husband. Why does Jesus suddenly switch from the offer of living water to her rather torrid sex life? The answer is, he's not changing the subject. He's simply getting her to think about where she has been seeking her fulfillment in her life so far. And the answer is, in men. He's facing her up to what she has been using to try and stuff that very big hole in her soul. And it hasn't worked. So what are the things that you and I go after in order to feel of value, to feel significant, to feel purposeful, fulfilled? What are our idols, as it were, that we kneel before and worship instead of Jesus? And it can be very subtle. Our idols can look like really good things. I've already given mine away. Church growth. If the church grows, I feel successful. But would God love me less if it wasn't growing? Sometimes that thought occurs to me, but it's a lie. Maybe yours is good deeds. That's a real weak spot for Christians. Because good deeds are good, we can easily make these our idols. But good deeds in themselves do not make God love you more. As Philip Yancey said in his well-known book, What's So Amazing About Grace, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. So what's the solution to this problem we have? What must we do? Well, the woman, shocked by Jesus' insight into her life, blurts out a question which ultimately leads to the answer. In verse 20, she effectively changes the subject and says, so so who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? And what Jesus says is probably not easy for a Samaritan to hear, but firstly he says in verse 22 that salvation will come from the Jews. Well, of course it will, because Jesus is Jewish. And this is one of the most challenging things about Christianity, really. It's, it's, It's why we cannot make up our own pet religions or our own spirituality to suit ourselves. Because Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, walked the roads of first century Israel until he was arrested and crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem and three days later rose from the dead, our faith is absolutely tied to a particular person in a particular place at a particular time in history. The God-man who carried the sins of the whole world on a cross in order that you and I and the Samaritan woman and all who repent and put their faith in Jesus will be saved to eternal life. Because of that, we know of no other path to salvation than Jesus who after he ascended back to his Father sent his Holy Spirit at Pentecost to live in all believers so that we can know him and love him and worship him. And what Jesus says effectively is that a time is coming when we won't need temples and rituals and sacrifices in order to have access to God. True worship, Jesus says in verse 23, is when we worship not in a particular place, but in spirit and in truth. 
A time when the Holy Spirit dwells in believers who worship Jesus, the living truth. Jesus said later in his ministry, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's so challenging, isn't he? There's no wiggle room. It's him or bust. And the Samaritan woman, who's a bit confused and still doesn't quite understand at this point who is standing in front of him, says in verse 25, well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to put us all right. He's going to, he'll, he'll answer all these questions. He'll sort it all out. And then the bombshell, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. In other words, you're staring at the Messiah right now. And at this point, she has two options, to believe him or to reject him. It was a very real choice. She hadn't got every question answered to her satisfaction. She still had some doubts, but she knew that this man carried real spiritual power and that she had experienced his compassion reaching out to her, an outcast of society. And she chose to trust him, to believe him, to bet her life on him. And we will never have all our questions answered. Never. But there comes a point when we have to take a step of faith or we will never know the kingdom of God. You can't look at the kingdom before you step into it. You can only step into it and then find out what it's like. And she makes her choice. And in verse 28, she goes back to the town and tells everyone about what's happened and invites them to come and find out for themselves. Verse 30, they come out and they're so moved by what they hear that they persuade Jesus to stay two more days. And many of the Samaritans, verse 39, come to believe and put their faith in Jesus, recognizing, verse 42, that he is the saviour of the world. But to finish up, let's go back to the choice she had when Jesus tells her, I am the Messiah. We all have a choice. We can all hold on to our personal idols and carry on worshipping at the altar of success or good deeds or money or career or children or great-grandchildren or church growth or whatever it is that we derive our significance from. Or we can lay our lives before the saviour of the world, accept his love, come to him in repentance for our sin, ask him to forgive our idolatry and turn away from it and worship him alone, in spirit and in truth, because he is God and he is the God who laid down his life for us. When you come up to communion today, why don't you bring those personal idols with you and exchange them for bread and wine? Jesus would love to take them from you. I have a little anecdote just to finish the, the, the picture on the front cover of your sheets was painted, um, it's about a five foot high painting. It was painted by an eight-year-old, an eight-year-old Lithuanian daughter of atheist parents. Akiana is her name. And she had visions of heaven. And this is what Jesus looked like in her visions. But what's amazing is that a four-year-old boy from Nebraska, who's the subject of a book and now a film called Heaven is for Real had a near-death experience while undergoing a life-saving operation in hospital in which he met Jesus in heaven. 
His father was fascinated to find out what Jesus looked like. And so he showed his son hundreds of photographs of, 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 of paintings and pictures that people have done of what they imagined Jesus would be like. And, and he showed them to his son, but each time he was disappointed. His son frustratingly said, no, that's not, that's not what he looked like. That's not what he looked like. Until one day his father found this picture on the internet and he showed it to his son Todd and Todd said, Dad, that's him. That's Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know if that's the face that the Samaritan woman looked at as she spoke to Jesus at the well. And we won't know until we too stand before him on the day of judgment. So do not worship this picture. But what's important for us today is to know that the Bible says that one day we will, like the Samaritan woman, stand before Jesus and that what's going to matter is whether we have taken him into our hearts, put him in the place of our idols and worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's exchange those idols as we come up for communion. Amen.